immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hey guys, and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 52. Our today's guest is Monica Boz. Monica has been working with Spatial Audio since 2011, when she first gained access to her local planetariums with 15.1 channel surround system. Since then, she has been continuously building tool sets in Max MSP to create large textured soundscapes that explore space, movement and interaction. Tapping into her roots in traditional audio engineering, she works with composers and live performance to explore methods of translating their work to spatial environments while exploring the role the audio engineer plays as a performer and musician. Monica, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to be here. And hello, Bjorn. It's been a while. I'm doing good. Uh, COVID is, uh, hasn't caved in yet, so it's pretty good. We're going to dive into the interview with Monica in a moment and also explore today's hot topic on spatial audio for domes. But before we do that, we're going to talk about some news. And there's been some big news. Uh, let's start with you, Bjorn. Um, Unreal Engine 5. Yeah, so Unreal Engine 5 has been... It's been announced a while ago, but now they've finally announced it so that it's now in open beta or alpha, whatever, so that now everybody can try it out. There's lots of things that's not working, but when it comes to the audio side of things, they have basically made the entire engine into one giant modular synth, which is pretty awesome. Um, it's if, if you look at the very... Like really, if you are to be really harsh about this, it doesn't bring anything new to the table that that any middleware or whatever couldn't do. But it would be very difficult to handle it in the way that that other tools would do this. So, Meta Sounds in Unreal Five is handling this, where the entire engine can feed on any value that any other variable can provide to you. So you can treat anything, which means that that you can also treat both samples and synthesized sounds and so on. There's some great examples on YouTube about how how to make this this robot that moves about. Um, it's a great example. It's not as a, not necessarily sounding good, but it's 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 it proves a point as to the power of these things. And I know that Sweet Justice sounds that I have worked with are providing sounds for one of the one of the bigger demos that they're doing for MetaSounds. Um, the only problems I have with MetaSounds as a name is that it keep, I keep remembering it, it as uh, MetaSynth, which is a completely different tool for, for VST and, and uh, synthesis, but that's a different story. But MetaSounds is um, a really big step forward in terms of how sound designers in an engine can actually treat sounds and manipulate variables and parameters parameters all the time in a in a real time focus whereas we previously had to rely on sample based audio where even though you can treat samples in this you can treat the variables that are controlling them much more fluid than you could in the past and i'm 
really, really looking forward to what people are going to bring to the table with MetaSounds. Um, hoping that, that this, this will be a, a way to communicate between game engine variables, of, let's say, gameplay cues and so on, as they're called in, in, in Unreal Engine, everything that, that the engine can provide so that we actually need less code support to create a fluid soundscape. That's, it's going to be super amazing. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I've not really had a chance to dive into it myself, but um, I saw some short videos on YouTube, like you said, and people trying different things, you know, um, demonstrating um, generative soundscape with FM synthesis or generating um, ambiences. Precisely, as you said, doesn't sound amazing, but I feel like this initial stage was necessary to make an introduction of the concept and that you and it certainly feels like a a big step closer to the you know the procedural audio that everybody's has been talking about and is expecting to be perfect in the future and now the technology is here i think it's open up for creative input and tweaking and improvement and expansion of 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 those languages and those libraries and what's possible within the engine. So, but, but when it comes to middleware, there, there's lots of excellent middleware solutions around. The whole problem has always been that that in in engine audio tools, so basically the same as that's what I hear from production to production that in engine animation tools, in engine uh, VFX tools, and so on. They're great, but they require so much tweaking to be on par with what else you can get that this is a big step forward. I'm not saying that this is necessarily the, the savior of the planet and the savior of, of audio as a whole, but th this definitely provides a tool set that will, audio designers will, will, would like to use. Uh, one of the problems being in Unreal in the past was the the how easy it was to feed variables between one thing or another. I know it was possible, but it wasn't very intuitive if you're not a programmer or understand the logic behind how the blueprints work. So I think MetaSounds is definitely a really, really nice way to go in terms of how to handle both samples and synthesis, especially because the synthesis can now occur in the engine itself, which it couldn't before. I think primarily for from a synthesis perspective, this means that now you can hook up a synthesizer or a granular sampler of sorts to any source and then say, this parameter drives X, this parameter drives Y, which it like the, the classic example would be for a car that is driving. Uh, speed up, speed down, torque, left, right, um, what gear are you in, and all these things. All these like easy to manipulate variables. Where are we? Where are we going? How fast are we going? What gear are we in? And so on. That is much easier to control now, whereas before we would probably have to ask more from code to provide us this information. And now we can much easier control the sounds with it. Let's move on to our next news item. And um, I guess it's somewhat not very new because a lot of us knew it was coming. Um, and I'm talking about Apple made an announcement that Dolby Atmos is now supported on Apple Music streaming platform. So 
that's a really big advancement when it comes to um, accessing spatial audio content amongst regular consumers within the music industry. Obviously, we know that the ecosystem has been in existence for quite some time. Other streaming platforms such as Deezer, Tidal, and a few others did have uh, more support in place. Um, however, it hasn't been um, particularly well documented or publicized, and the whole ecosystem is still very much fragmented. But this recent development is definitely um, a huge step in the right direction. And let's just talk about it for, for a second. Um, so what does it mean actually and how it works? Anyone who has access to Dolby Atmos production suite, mastering suite, or whatever the version of the tools that you would like to use for content creation. In fact, that's been recently democratized even further by creating uh, versions of the tools that are compatible with Logic, which we know is absolutely huge within the music production community around the world, but also Ableton Live and and few others uh, with an introduction of Atmos Panna for Music um, as an additional plugin, essentially makes the whole process a lot more straightforward and um, uh, easy to access for uh, for people who maybe traditionally haven't been involved with spatial audio, but have been involved with music production, recording, whatnot. So essentially, anyone can then create um, a Dolby Atmos content and release it to preferred streaming platforms. You know, one of the portals that is available uh, to do that is Avid Play, um, which essentially acts as a you know. Um, mini distribution platform where you input all the relevant information, metadata and all the involved parties and even percentage splits and artwork and whatnot. And then you get a huge list of stream platforms where you just tick where you want to go and voila, um, at some point you should appear on those platforms. But then what happens next? This is where it gets a little bit difficult. Dolby Atmos is uh, supported with certain playback devices, as in certain uh, smart devices, that it, it wouldn't play uh, on any device. Um, obviously, we know that there are other devices such as sound bars and sound pods and all sorts of things, um, dedicated players that support Atmos that will be able to support that format. Even things like iMac, the new iMac has Atmos built into it. So um, I've not actually heard one myself, but the announcement was made uh, several weeks ago. So that's one barrier. Um, then obviously another big part which makes the whole thing very exciting is the component of the head tracking. Now you have 3D mix with three degrees of freedom, uh, which is very interesting. And uh, as a lot of you know, Apple does uh, have a couple of products on the market that support head tracking. There's also obviously other brands and products that support head tracking one way or the other. However, it's not to say that they would work with Dolby Atmos or they would work with Apple Music streaming platform. So as you can see, the situation is quite still fragmented and you have to have right device uh, and you, to be able to play it, you have to have the right device to be able to listen to it. You have to have right subscription type. And all these things need to come together to be able to 
um, appreciate the content as it was intended, which makes it rather challenging for content creators, um, even the whole head tracking component. At the moment, there's not a lot of solutions, if at all, to be able to work with Dolby Atmos in your favorite DAW and have a head tracker working. There, obviously, there are hacks and things that kind of give you a, f- uh, a flavor and indication how it would work, but it's it's not the same. It's definitely not the same because it doesn't correspond, it doesn't communicate with, with the object planning metadata as intended. So there's loads of ifs and buts and, and whys and whatnot, but it certainly feels like uh, it's a huge step and a step in the right direction. What about you guys? You obviously, uh, audio people probably love listening to music, love creating music and sounds. Like, What does it mean to you as a professional who's involved in the industry, but also what does it mean for you as a consumer who just likes to listen to music on streaming platforms? Um, so actually, I have some friends, because uh, where I come from, and um, I'm sure we'll get into this a bit more later, is you know from a music production background. And so I work with a lot of artists, and I have a lot of artists that I know that are really excited about you know starting to have you know more access to being able to create and compose for you know these kind of more 360 environments and you know thinking in that context so i definitely think it's um you know that it's exciting to see how much uh, some of the spatial audio stuff is taking off in more mainstream contexts and especially, you know, getting into the music production world, um, you know, definitely gets a lot more people into developing tool sets. Um, there's more money there. So people, you know, will put more money into this kind of stuff. So, you know, if it does take off, um, again, I think from like a creative con- context, like cr- it's it's exciting for creators Um now, how well does that translate to the end user, I think, is always the question. And how much is the end user actually acknowledging the fact that, you know, this is a Dolby Atmos in, you know, stereo in your little, like, you know, earpod headphones? Uh, you know, is that, um, how much is that really kind of translating is, you know, one of the next questions I think you have to ask. I think it's kind of, you know, like that audio file. Um, question, you know, there's a lot of, there's a whole, you know, community of people that are really into the high-end audio and, you know, will spend the money to, you know, be able to create these really, um, you know, amazing playback systems so that they can have that full experience of what, you know, the artist intended. However, again, those people are kind of few and in between. And it's, while there is a market, it's not the everyday user um, and so, you know, I think as we create this content, you know, it, it, there is a question of like, are we trying to make it um, available for just anyone to connect with? Or is it something that is being, you know, more targeted to people who are, you know, going to be, you know, trying to actually build that experience in their home set up for themselves? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of questions that for me, you know, again, I'm in. I, I'm into the live space um, and more interested, you know, really interested in kind of creating live productions. And I think that that, you know, to me is a way that you can really, uh, you know, it, it, you can start to influence more people and make it more accessible, um, you know, to a larger group of people to be able to have that full experience of, you know, being able to be surrounded and immersed. Absolutely. You're definitely making a, a good point there because having this new format available 
out there just allows these other types of art and ways of um, experiencing art, like say in in life format, to be delivered. Say you you're doing a live concert and then you you can do like a convert your whatever the setup you've had at the venue to Dolby Atmos. Now you can release it as a as a recording of a live performance, and then people can enjoy it with head tracking, three degrees of freedom. Amazing. There's definitely probably a market for that kind of thing. But probably as with everything else, it comes in these like slow cycles. Firstly, the the whole music streaming was a new thing not long ago. Now it seemed to be like, uh, how could we live without it? Um, it saved music industry and it really did. And then the next thing was high definition or high res audio, which was like a premium tier of subscription where you would listen to music, whatever the you know high, higher sample rate and, and bit depth. But now they just throw it away as a freebie because obviously the objectives have shifted. But obviously not all streaming platforms have that currency to trade with. You know, somebody like Amazon or Apple can do that because obviously music streaming is not their main business by far. And they are absolutely enormous, huge companies. Whereas for somebody like Spotify, um, that is the only currency. So does it mean all of these other music streaming platforms really have to wake up and try to start playing this game and, and get on board and maybe collaborate with other hardware manufacturers, uh, institutions that are involved with developing with other immersive codecs, um, MPEG-H being a, a most um, obvious example here, um, to level up the playing field and, uh, and just kind of make the competition healthy as well? Yeah, I mean, I've been interested in MPEG-H from the first, you know, time I heard about it, uh, which was quite a few years ago now. But, uh, um, you know, that ability to be able to distribute, you know, this spatial stuff that you are doing, um, you know, in a more broad context is very exciting, um, you know, from a creator's, you know, standpoint and being able to um, have that reach. And so, Again, you know, as everything in these industries work, you know, there's the business side, um, you know, and is this actually something people are going to pay for and want? You know, where is that kind of going to um, land? I guess we will see. Um, as a creator, though, I find it very exciting. Okay, just for, for the reference uh, for our listeners, we are recording this podcast on the 9th of June. Uh, Wednesday. So uh, just in case if you hear this uh, slightly later, this is not the first uh, nor the last time we're talking about um, Dolby Atmos or spatial music on major streaming platforms, etc. But let's move on and dive into our interview. Well, Monica, <laughs> welcome to the podcast again. <laughs> let's start as usual. Uh, let's go back to the beginning of your career. How did you get into the audio? Um, so, it's always a you know a, a story, isn't it? Um, uh, so, I, I actually started out uh, um, as like a musician when I was younger and just loving to play music. And as a lot of musicians decided at one point in time that. I wanted to go to school to be able to learn how to record myself. Um, and I went to school to learn how to record myself. And I'm very 
quickly learned that I um, couldn't actually record myself <laughs> um, and that, it, yeah, but I fell in love with audio engineering and I fell in love with the process of recording and the process of, you know, exploring sounds and tonalities. Um, and uh, back in about 2011, uh, one of my teachers uh, started this uh, artist and technology collective called Signal to Noise Labs. Uh, and we just uh, started, we, we ended up having access to our local planetarium uh, at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, uh, Gates Planetarium. And they have a 15.1, uh, you know, surround sound system there. And, you know, back in 2011, uh, what do you do with a 15.1 surround system? How do you even interface with that? Uh, and we started, you know, developing, got into Max MSP. Um, started developing our own systems of being working with ambisonics and um, being able to communicate with this environment. And I just kind of fell in love. And that's really kind of sent me down this path that I've gone down over the past, um, I guess we're at like 10 years now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Monica, tell us about your company, um, Resonant Interactions. It's a cool name. Yeah, so um, I actually uh, I just started that in 2017. Um, I uh, went I went to grad school at uh, the University of Colorado in Boulder, and was doing a degree uh, in creative arts and technology. Uh, and for my my final thesis, I built a 360 degree um, live performance for uh, with the 360 degree projections, spatial audio. Um, exploring uh, this concept of resonance through the lens of physics, psychology, art, and music. Um, and kind of through that process, I, you know, once I left grad school, I decided I wanted to start this company. Um, and I called it Resonant Interactions because kind of based on a lot of my thesis work. And, uh, you know, it's still very much growing, um, still evolving. But uh, the mission behind it and, you know, the idea that, you know, I, I started with is I, I love this concept of bringing, you know, people together from different disciplines, from science, from art, from technology, and, you know, having people, um, you know, talk about and kind of explore different concepts uh, that, um, you know, are moving us, you know, like that are present in our lives that are important to, you know, humanity and our future and, you know, and exploring different ideas of, you know, how could we envision a future or how could we inspire a better future? Um, and so, you know, for me, a lot of my work is, you know, and the stuff that I'm very interested in is this kind of immersive experience and creating and developing these kind of immersive spaces. And so I, I, I was curious in how I could potentially use this um, concept of bringing these different people together to be able to create these immersive productions um, that we're seeking to inspire a better future. Um, and so, you know, as far as uh, uh, how that's kind of been progressing um, before COVID, you know, I had some different productions that I was working on, kind of building up and starting to try and tour um, that were, you know, in line with a lot of this vision. Uh, and of course, with COVID, everything's been a little bit on hold. However, 
I'm going to be moving down to New Mexico here in just about a month and starting to work on actually building out a studio space down there. And um, I'm hoping to, you know, expand that into being able to have artist residencies and invite people out to be able to kind of explore some of these concepts and see how we can, you know, just look at, you know, the future um, through this lens of, you know, exploration and discovery. Awesome. Well, to me, it certainly comes across uh, that your projects usually consist of three core ingredients, which are space, speakers, many speakers usually, spatial audio, obviously, and live performance. But let's go a little bit deeper and just to get a better understanding what kind of projects you've been involved with, especially recently. Should we talk about Entopia and this uh, full dome multimedia performance? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so Entopia was the was one of my most recent projects, and uh, it was a collaboration between myself and uh, five other um, uh, artists, as well as or as technicians, as well as uh, Janet Fetter, who is a she a really really incredible uh, musical artist. She plays prepared guitar. Um, this is where she puts things on her guitar strings and it changes the tone of her guitar. Um, she does some really incredible work. Um, so if you haven't, you know, checked out any of her work before, you should definitely look into it. Um, and I'd, I'd gotten connected with her through a mutual uh, kind of a, 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 a someone I'd, you know, gotten involved working with in the past, uh, Joe Shepard. And he'd helped her record her latest album, her latest album, this close, and um, you know, and I just invited them to come into the dome because we were doing, you know, a lot of kind of ex experimentation and exploration in that space, and we decided we wanted to build this um, production that you know was exploring this concept of utopia, and how you know, as we're, you know, looking towards the future and utopia is something, you know, a lot of people talk about in, you know, we're trying to reach for these kind of utopic visions of the, for the future. Um, however, everyone, a lot of people will tend to have a different idea of what utopia is. And so we kind of wanted to explore, you know, this human relationship to these concepts of, um, you know, what it, what is a utopic future look like? Um, and so we did that in a very kind of abstract way um, through, you know, shape and form and, you know, particles and chaos and, you know, being able to kind of explore through visual projections as well as through sonic and spatial projections, you know, how things could, you know, morph from being something very recognizable and very structured into something, you know, very chaotic and, um, you know, getting, you know, kind of moving all around you in a lot of different ways that seems a little bit off-putting, maybe dissonant. Um, and, being able to explore kind of that relationship and that contrast. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we, uh, we, our first uh, presentation of that was for the Conference of World Affairs up in Boulder. Um, we did that at the Fisk Planetarium. And then uh, we won an immersive sensory award in 2019 to be able to present it up at the Cube in their 140 channel speaker array, um, along with uh, projecting on 
their cyclorama that they had there. Um, and then we had also presented it in Fort Collins um, at their the local planetarium up there. And we were working on kind of, you know, trying to expand it um, when COVID hit. And so a lot of that's been put on hold um, for the time being. A very exciting project, a lot of really beautiful artwork and really beautiful collaboration. Another project I wanted to ask you about, I know you've been involved with a Mimu Glove project and you worked alongside former NASA scientist and co-developer of Mimu Gloves. Yeah, that sounded really interesting. And um, I, I understand that there was a piece that came out as the result. Can you tell us more about your experience working on such an ambitious project? I think back in about 2018, I actually, I met Kelly Snook, um, who is one of the co-developers of the Mimu Gloves. And uh, we were uh, both presenting at a NIME conference at, uh, up at Virginia Tech. Um, it's a NIME is New Interfaces for Musical Expression. That's the um, conference. Uh, but um, we both just really connected over. Uh, she she was a you know former NASA scientist and you know is developing these Mimu gloves that are doing this really cool gestural control of sound and music and um, you know I I really was you know into the full dome world and the spatial audio world and I was like we need to do all of this stuff in a dome <laughs> and uh, you know and it's kind of my answer for everything um, and you know and so a lot of which she was working on is she wanted to build this instrument for sonifying the universe um, and being able to kind of explore data in a very tangible and artistic um, kind of presentation. And so, you know, I ended up um, building this piece or it's an instrument called Orbits um, that uh, it was very much inspired by, you know, working alongside Kelly and um, it uses the data of Venus and Earth as it travels around the sun to create different tones that I can manipulate in real time. And I can, so it's a, you know, use it as a live performance tool and be able to um, have it play for different um, kind of, you know, multi-channel systems. So the first the first uh, performance I did with it was for a 16-channel system, but then I also took it to the cube and, you know, was able to uh, alter it so it could play in a 140-channel you know, system. So that's something I, I've been very interested in is how can you, you know, build these, you know, instruments or devices to be able to, you know, easily translate to different sized um, speaker arrays, different positioned speaker arrays um, pretty easily for live context. Um, but, you know, it was a really, uh, um, it, it's a really exciting, uh, instrument to play with. Um, you know, again, I'm using the Mimu gloves to be able to control it, uh, as well as an iPad and, you know, a lot of, you know, my more recent kind of exploration has been around how do you, um, you know, different kinds of controls for spatial audio, um, installation or kind of live performances and how can you, you know, build instruments that are sonifying data or are doing interesting kinds of um, audio effects and be able to, again, control those in real time and, uh, and change them for different arrays and stuff like that.
Our hot topic today is spatial audio for domes. I must say it's not something that has been discussed in great deal of detail on this podcast before, but I certainly have noticed a gradual shift and uptake as a trend recently for this amazing and I would say rather unexplored format. So it's about time we dive into this. Monica, with your experience, you're certainly an expert on this. Let's start with the basics. Can you give us an overview on this subject? What are the domes and planetariums and and in, in relation to audio? And what, what what's the typical venue like? What what's the typical setup is like? And how many of those venues out there in the world? This is one of the very big challenges of audio in domes and just also visuals in domes as well. Um, there are no standards when it comes to building a dome. Uh, and, you know, so, and of course, most domes are uh, planetariums that are attached to, you know, science centers. However, there are becoming more and more domes that are specifically, you know, oriented towards art and artistic creation and production out there. Um, however, you know, again, like the kind of where the history of a dome and kind of where it came from was very associated, you know, as, as you know, like kind of a space that people would go to and you know, present in was very much associated with planetariums and, you know, setting up, you know, these uh, spaces that are, again, attached to science institutions. And um, they exist all over the world. I mean, anywhere that there's a science institution, most of the times there's a dome. And these spaces back in like the uh, 90s, uh, there was a digital dome technology that started coming out. Um, and with the digital projection technology for being able to project into these dome spaces, um, it suddenly opened up that space to, you know, be um, much more than just, you know, a space where you go and look at stars or laser shows and things like that. However, you know, again, a lot of these spaces have been around for a while. Um, there's definitely, you know, rehabbing that happens. And the systems that are in place in these domes are not cheap. Um, and so, you know, without any standards in place, it's hard to, you know, and agreed upon standards. It's, you know, and, and even getting people to agree upon standards is hard because it's a lot of money that you have to invest to re refab your dome so that it would, you know, actually have a standard um, you know, some, like with movie theaters, right? You know, movie theaters, there's certain standards that were created um, that just doesn't exist in a dome as far as like with the actual build of the physical space. Um, so it makes it very hard to, you know, try to figure out how can you create audio content that is going to sound the same in every dome. Yeah, definitely. Um, I must say, I probably only had one, uh, like a real life situation where I've professionally come across this this conversation, this challenge. Um, I, I don't know if any of you are aware of a project called Micro Monsters with David Attenborough, which was um, released alongside a Quest 2. It's been out for, for a little while now. So um, one of the um, things that kind of hasn't happened yet, but potentially will, is um, reappropriation of the content for uh, for for domes for for a particular distributor that has access to such venues around the world, and um, even uh, being in London, which is one of the biggest cities in the world, um, as far as I know, there's only one dome uh, 
that is in kind of fully operational existence at the moment, which is the um, planetarium in Greenwich. And like you said, it's obviously a very iconic and old uh, facility, uh, which was designed for completely different purposes um, initially, but obviously had its sort of uh, um, a bit of a facelift and uh, injection of new technologies and whatnot. We, we kind of talked about it on episode 50 just a few weeks ago where the, the guys were involved with a project that was being prepared to go for the Dome release as well. And the the 360 video works really well with the spherical shape of the Dome, which uh, I think that is coming to a realization and maybe more and more people realizing that's another really solid avenue how to extend the life of immersive content um, and kind of deliver it to the maybe portions of society that typically not exposed because then, you know, not the quest to owners or whatnot. Um, and, you know, for any kind of entertaining or educational content, is a, it's a kind of a match made in heaven, really. But like going back to the challenges of distributing content, you know, in terms of audio, you can probably agree that, you know, the shape of a dome is going to be uniform across all venues, you know, it'll be um, upper hemisphere of a 360 uh, sphere, which you can uh, overlay 360 video on. But in terms of audio, um, they vary from <laughs> maybe uh, stereo or even mono with just a bunch of speakers dotted around the space, uh, all the way to some more more elaborate, like a special dome formats and 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 typically you've got 5.1. So if you have this, um, you know, beautifully crafted third order ambisonic mix and with, um, you know, headlock stem for score, voiceover and cinematic sound effects, you know, how do you then package it all in, in the way that you kind of um, hit the most scenarios? Do you just go for 5.1 and, you know, probably that is your average in terms of uh, most uh, common um, setups around the world. Um, I'm just curious, like, what have you come across in, in your time in terms of what kind of sound systems, um, you know, uh, people have been operating with? Yeah, so, um, yeah, 5.1, 7.1, kind of these traditional sort of surround movie formats have kind of, have been what is the standard in a dome, you know, for, uh, you know, the past... Ooh you know, since surround sound kind of, you know, started becoming more of a thing. Um, and a lot of it, you know, is to do with the fact that, you know, the content creators, you know, there's tools for people who are composing and can, you know, be able to mix for surround. Um, and that just has made it a lot easier because a lot of, especially, you know, the Ambisonics tool, you know, Ambisonics VBAP, you know, all of these more, you know, kind of spatial algorithmic approaches. Um, while, those algorithms have been there for a very long time. It hasn't been part of mainstream, you know, music production or mainstream film production. And so, you know, the people that are, you know, the really amazing composers that you're going to hire to compose something for, you know, a, a, you know, a space, like they're used to working, you know, more in, you know, again, surround sound, that's a more uh, common format. And so that is what, you know, the domes have adapted at this point. 
or adopted at this point. However, when you go to domes, the placement of the speakers is completely different from dome to dome to dome. You have, uh, again, as I said, when I started working at the Gates Planetarium, they had a 15.1 surround system, which, you know, they didn't use most of the time all of the 15 channels. Um, and, like, they had to kind of create, you know, sort of a weird... Um, and if they did, it was like they had to sort of create a weird kind of 5-1 or 7-1 sort of, you know, format. And so they actually would have someone come in and mix the audio content for a show in the dome, you know, to be able to kind of match it to that dome um, every time they would bring in a new show for a while um, because it's just so different every space. And you know, again, it's, you know, you say that, oh, okay, well, everything you you can at least rely on, you know, the fact that, you know, everything's this half sphere, 180 degrees, and that's actually not even, you know, 100% correct, because even the shape of the domes, there's different, you know, kinds of, you know, spheres, different kinds of hemispheres. Um, some domes are more 180, some, you know, go to more like 270. Um, you know, some are going to be on a slant, while some are going to be, you know, uh, just, you know, kind of flat where you, you know, lie up and you kind of look at it. Um, so there's, again, very, a lot of differences to even just how the dome is physically built um, that creates challenges. There's also issues with the screen and the different kinds of screens that people use for being able to uh, have an acoustically transparent sort of effect. Um, there's different materials that people would, will use. And so that actually, that changes the sound as well. Um, and it's, it's, it's a really, you know, it's definitely a, a challenge that a lot of people have been talking about and not one that necessarily has an easy solution, but I've always been excited about, you know, challenges that don't necessarily have an easy solution. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely excited, you know, as, uh, you know, these spatial audio formats are becoming more and more popular because that then makes it a lot easier for the dome community to be able to actually start saying, well, okay, like now there are tools out there. Now, now there are software systems that we can buy and we can implement that can move from having an ambisonics to a VBAP delivery to a stereo delivery to a, you know, 7.1 delivery and be able to still map it to whatever, you know, kind of speaker array that, you know, the facility has. So if we just imagine that, you know, it's in our power to influence that aspect of how domes are set up as a content creator, what would be the dream case scenario? What would that perfect sound system setup look like in a kind of classic, uh, all things um, considering perfect dome or planetarium? Um, are we talking about potentially quite a large number of speakers dotted around the perimeter of hemisphere behind the acoustically transparent uh, surface um, on which the projection is mapped. So we can uh, kind of take advantage of object panning. Yeah, so I, I definitely am all for systems being installed that are evenly distributed, you know, throughout kind of the dome space um, and being able to, you know, accommodate, you know, like if you want to be able to virtualize a 5.1, you 
you know, um, array or virtualize a 7.1 array if you if that's the delivery content that you can do that. Um, but then, you know, again, have that kind of equal kind of spacing to be able to, you know, work with Ambisonics, to be able to work with VBAP, you know, uh, and some of the other kind of algorithmic formats for these kind of large scale speaker arrays. Um, so that, you know, there is, you know, that flexibility and that space. Um, of course, you know, I, I may be slightly biased just because I, you know, I love working with, uh, you know, some of those formats uh, more so than surround sound. And I have maybe a little bit of a, you know, I'm not not super like excited about surround sound, but, you know, so I love all of these spatial algorithms. <laughs> of course. Even the most advanced surround sound setup is only two-dimensional. You know, we don't have height. You know, we don't have uh, object panning. And and with that goes away a lot of uh, nice things we do love about spatial audio. So it's whilst it's still very much present in industry and certain verticals, um, you know, we gradually transitioning into the age where I think we're going to see more and more truly three-dimensional sound system setups. But um, there's another um, elephant in the in the in the dome, um, kind of easy way to playing back visual content and audio content at the same time. Because obviously, um, I'm I certainly don't know much about that. But assuming there are uh, software programs and and kind of players in inverted commas that allow you to do that, and there are a number of formats that kind of widely adopted across the industry. But you know, for you to come in and um, you know deliver your kind of I suppose more exotic um, spatial mix, you need to come with your laptop with your uh, Maximus P and maybe virtual sound card, and then connect to Dante, and then obviously then send assign your outputs to the relevant speakers in the in the venue. I guess we need like a simplified, established way where people can just agree on something and say, okay, this this is the format. If you supply your video and audio in such format, then the the worker at the venue who isn't an expert on Maximus P and SPAT can just basically push three buttons and off you go. Um, I'm, I might be completely wrong and please correct me if anybody out there who's involved with that kind of thing, but it doesn't really exist. I could, well, no, actually I'd say it does. Um, I mean, it, you know, film, like, and so for, uh, you know, most, most of these systems actually don't run audio and visual off the same system um, because the visual, uh, you know, content is really, um, you know, is actually really like, it's I mean you're 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 running visuals at like 4k now they're getting to 8k you know as far as the you know visual kind of uh as far as you know just like the visual output of uh you know the domes like it's very very complicated they're doing really stuff at really high resolutions it's very cutting edge very forward thinking um there's a lot of stuff that's happened you know like within that space um since like the 90s that a lot of people i think even you know again as we're starting kind of this explosion of vr right now um don't actually realize that there's a lot of people that have been working in the full dome arena for a very long time that are you know solving these really complex problems that i think a lot of people in vr kind of just getting introduced to and it, it's, but it's, I mean, it's really cool and a really inspiring space in that way. Um, and as far as the, like, you know, I mean, the video sync and the audio sync, that's pretty basic, um, you know, broadcasting, uh, you know, kind of even, you know, you know, play like film playback. 
but of established formats like stereo or surround sound, but what we're talking about if I want to deploy higher on the sonic mix, for instance, with objects. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of that, I guess, is is it a pre-rendered, you know, piece of music or content, or is it a live? Oh, a pre pre-rendered. Yeah, and I think you know, with pre-rendered, it's you're going to be using the same, you know, playback methodology. I mean, it's just like you know, basic SMPTE, um, and being able to just have your you know sync, you know, between your visual and your audio, and you just have to know kind of where that sync is. And, you know, and that, and you can have these systems that'll, you know, with your time code and that'll sync it up. Um, but you, you still need a software that will decode ambisonics. Yeah. So as far as, again, for the playback side of things, you definitely are going to need, you know, a software that can play back on ambisonics that has some kind of SMPTE um, capability or some kind of, you know, being able to create, uh, you know, that syncing capability. Um, and, uh you know, or, you know, I, I, I actually, you know, it's like you, you need the decoding side of it. Um, and you can have, uh, again, you know, someone can just deliver you, like, if it's a third order ambisonics track, just the 16 channels, and then you have the decoding on your system. Um, so, again, that as far as, like, what are the software solutions that are out there for decoding ambisonics, um, you know, again, they're, there's a lot of those are becoming more and more available as, you know, there's more and more companies that are interested in being able to, you know, develop these kinds of systems. Um, but as far as, you know, that actual process of syncing, uh, you know, that that would be good just going back to that basic. I totally agree with you. Obviously, they have established workflows, how they uh, receive and play back the content. You know, we're talking about traditional cinema venues, exactly the same thing here. But I guess, you know, whilst there are various solutions for spatial audio, ambisonic decoding for us to work in, you know, in game engines and DAWs, whatnot, but like if you're working with a distributor that maybe ha has access to 1500 domes around the world and you want to send them uh, kind of the most, um, I suppose, advanced spatial audio mix with. Uh, maybe a 180 video that can be projected onto the dome, there isn't like a one solution that can be distributed across all those venues, easily translatable for everyone that can just basically put it on. And like I said, for like somebody who's trained to operate the, the dome, doesn't necessarily need to mess around with loads of um, auxiliary bits of software to make the sense out of it. I think that that's the bit that I was referring to that is, I think it's missing. And I think once it's once it exists and it's really accessible, I think it could really offer amazing opportunities for 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 both sides, maybe for XR industry to find an additional avenue to deliver the immersive content to the venues that traditionally have not dealt with that. Like you said, they're traditionally working with you know, uh, with other types of content, other types of creators. Uh, like, I think there's there's a, there's a gap to be bridged that uh, potentially could be beneficial for both sides. But at the same time, I would say it's kind of happening gradually. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like this, again, like the explosion of VR has really helped and the, you know, explosion of, you know, this now spatial audio movement um, in the past, you know, few years um, where a lot of, uh, you know, bigger companies like Dolby, like Sony, um, you know, like you, know, you have the Aura 3D, like these, you have these companies that are starting, um, 
you know, I mean, now Apple, like we were just talking about earlier, you know, the streaming, it's like with all of these co- like bigger name companies, like getting interested in this medium, uh, they're putting that money in to develop really steady tools that you know, someone can buy and rely on their hardened, you know, they, um, you know, aren't just like some hacked to be uh, hacked together software that you built in Max MSP to like, you know, do something that there's just no other software that does it. Um, you know, these softwares are being created. And, you know, at this point, like what exactly is the software that, you know, uh, um, I think is going to be the winner. I'm not quite sure I know yet, um, especially for the full dome space. Uh, stuff that I'm, you know, excited about is, you know, like uh, Spat Revolution or, you know, they have the Holophonics um, kind of hardware device. Um, you know, really like all you need is something that can decode to uh, do the decoding for your venue. Otherwise, as a content creator, and then as a content creator, you can just deliver, you know, the, um, you know, 16, the encoded, you know, uh, audio file for, you know, your spatial playback, and then they can decode it for their system. Otherwise, as a content creator, you can also, you know, if you can get kind of like the speaker placement, you know, um, in that venue, you can then de- create a decoded version for their system, which is what I do a lot for some of my stuff. If I am doing a rendered playback, um, is I'll, you know, get the measurements for their speaker array and I'll just decode to that speaker array. And then I'll give them like a five, one, you know, decoded, uh, you know, mix that can play back on their speaker array. And actually I, I, I forgot to ask you, in the heart of all your projects, uh, we're talking about Max and uh, SPAT. And you mentioned um, vector-based panning quite a few times as well. So can you share a little bit about why and what you like particularly about this workflow? I, I suppose it's the most powerful solution out there in the world right now when it comes to these specific kind of projects. But nevertheless, can you expand a little bit more on that? Yeah, so one thing... I'm always talking about um, is like, I I don't actually necessarily think that, uh, you know, I'm all about one algorithm. I think that each of these algorithms and each of these different approaches to decoding, you know, audio to a large multi-channel array has a different um, strength and a different weakness. They have a different sound, you know, it's like choosing a different EQ for, you know, your track when you're, you know, doing your final mix. Like they have a different sonic quality. So personally, I really love the combination of different algorithms. Also just point-based approach as well, especially if I have, you know, like 140 channels to work with. Um, Point-based audio becomes a lot more appealing. Um, You know, and so being able to, uh, you know, kind of combine a lot of these different approaches is really important to me as a creator and something that not a lot of softwares actually offer currently um, the ability to do. Most of the spatial softwares that are being developed have whatever algorithm they've developed, um, which may be loosely based on VBAP or Ambisonics, or it may actually be those, you know, uh, algorithms. Um, and then, you know, you're able to kind of position things in space. I like to have, um, why I'm really excited about like spat revolution is it actually allows you, you know, the ability to choose 
the different algorithms and I create different algorithmic buses um, depending on, you know, for, you know, your content. So you could have, you know, an Ambisonics bus and you could have a VBAT bus and you could have a, a KNN, you know, K-nearest neighbor bus. And you can then be able to combine those. And so you could have different sounds playing out of different, um, you know, algorithmic uh, de- decoding um, formats. And so that that's really exciting to me. Um, and being able to kind of have that flexibility of sonic choice and sonic sound, again, coming from an audio engineering background, but also as a composer and creator background, um, you know, I like to be able to, you know, really, you know, like think about what kind of sound I'm going for and um, what algorithm or, you know, tool I would choose to be able to best get that sound. You know, the tool sets of SPAT, uh, you know, were developed by IRCAM. They're a for-profit institution, um, you know, so, uh, you know, they're doing a lot of this research and then so the, they're creating, you know, some of these softwares along the way, um, you know, but they have a lot of this research that they're also kind of, you know, making more readily available to the public. Um, and so, uh, you know, the the SPAT tools um, for Max MSP are one of the, you know, uh, some of the one of the tool sets that a lot of people that work with spatial audio in Max MSP use. Um, they're not the only ones that you can use, uh, but they're definitely a very popular one. And again, one of the popular, you know, the things about it um, is, you know, being able to have that, uh, um, you know, being able to have that uh, approach of um, being able to choose different kinds of algorithmic. Um, uh, kind of decoding. And, you know, with Max, for people that have never used it before or don't even know what it is, it's a, um, you know, it's a graphical programming environment. So instead of typing line-based code, you're able to kind of have little objects that you can then patch together. And, you know, so you're able to actually create, um, you know, these like pretty much you just kind of imagine what you want to create and you can find tools and piece together things to be able to create that thing. Um, and so uh, people develop these objects for Max that you can then just plug into whatever your system is that you are trying to build or whatever kind of device you're trying to build. Um, and yeah, the SPAT tools have been very uh, popular throughout, you know, for spatial audio and, um, they are a very powerful tool set. Um, again, they really, it's just, you know, these little objects that are able, that decode, you know, the audio to these different formats or encode the audio to, you know, these different formats. And you can kind of combine them how you want to um, and build systems, you know, do, you know, any kind of like interactive control that you want to do, be able to kind of just imagine it and create it. Kind of going back to the the topic of planetarium and, I just wanted to talk about logistics and the business aspects of delivering immersive content within the domes and planetariums. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, You know, business models is a huge conversation within the full dome realm, you know, and trying to discuss, you know, how, especially, you know, as artists who are interested in creating art, 
for domes and not necessarily science content, you know, what is the, what does that look like? Um, you know, as far as from kind of like the VR standpoint and the, you know, opportunity for people creating VR um, to, you know, present their content in a dome. Uh, so the, the way that, you know, traditional, you know, shows work within the domes is, you know, the, the a museum will pay a licensing fee to be able to kind of play that film for a long period of time. Now, depending on what that film is, um, you know, they can be fairly expensive, you know. So, uh, and then they can also be, uh, you know, sometimes there are, you know, educational, like, dome shows that people have created that are, you know, uh, you know, they'll, they'll kind of put up for free and people can kind of, especially the smaller domes that can't necessarily afford to pay the big licensing fees for some of the, you know, bigger, more kind of elaborate productions. Um, you know, they'll usually kind of go towards some more of this like free content that's not necessarily, um, been, uh, you know, hasn't, you know, is, is being offered for free. Um, so, uh, Again, there's, you know, the as far as depending on what kind of content you're creating, um, you know, if you're trying to, you know, create, uh, again, the competition is, you know, I'd say it's there's there's quite a bit of competition in the sense of, you know, to be able to create. Um, and, and as far as like if you're trying to translate VR to a dome, things that you have to be aware of is definitely resolution and frame rate. Um, as soon as you put things into a dome, like your resolution, again, domes, like most domes do not play content underneath 2K at this, um, you know, point in time. So you're definitely needing your content. And a lot of domes are, at, you know, kind of their standard is 4K um, all the way up to 8K. Um, and so, one of the challenges, you know, that a lot of people in the full dome industry face from a visual standpoint um, that are creating, especially like live action content, is being able to film that at those that high of a resolution. So as a VR artist, if you are hoping that you want your work to eventually play in a dome, you need to make sure that you're recording it at a very high resolution. Um, so that it will be able to be presented in the dome because as soon as you project it onto a screen that that is that big, you know, you suddenly see that resolution issue, those resolution issues. Um, and it can make the audience feel kind of, you know, uneasy and sick if the resolution isn't very good. Um, and frame rate as well. Um, that definitely plays a part. Uh, so, you know, as far as, again, as V, uh, um, you know, that translation, um, you need to be very like, conscientious of some of these different, um, you know, how it translates. And if you are wanting to eventually present it in a dome, knowing how it can translate. Um, I guess I got off, off topic to like a little bit more of the technical side of things. But, you know, from the business standpoint, uh, there's definitely there's distributors, you know, that distribute to these markets. There's not a lot of distributors. Um, you know, so if you can get in with one of these distributors, you know, and they think that your content will work on the dome and it's something they can try to sell, they can try to sell it. There's not necessarily any promise that, you know, it will be sold. Usually planetariums run, um, you know, a show like they might have like two or three shows that they run for like a couple months. It's kind of more similar to like theatrical experiences, um, you know, so being able to have something that, you know, so again, 
And they also only have a certain budget for, you know, the year. Um, so again, there's a bit of competition as far as, you know, if there's, you know, uh, like, you know, a couple of really good dome shows that are out there, um, you know, you have to compete against people that are creating this like really high, high quality content, you know, that have been, you know, for the dome specifically um, to be able to get in, you know, at kind of the like high licensing fees that, you know, planetariums are used to paying. And again, that has to be educational content. Um, now, if we want to talk about, you know, from the business, from the artistic side of things, the business of, you know, uh, Dome is a completely different thing. One of the more interesting groups um, that's kind of explored some, what I would say, uh, to me is the most interesting um, business model is actually a group called Mesmerica or a show called Mesmerica. And, um, you know, and they're doing more of kind of a rental model um, where they do all their own marketing, all of their own, uh, um, you know, being kind of get, you know, they use it as more of an event space. So they'll rent out the the planetarium as more of a theater and then they'll sell the tickets for the price that they want to, and they'll do all their own marketing. And so if you're able to put together a good show that you can do really good marketing with, um, you know, most planetariums are closed after five. And so, you know, that's the great time to do artistic content. Um, and so you can create, you know, kind of an artistic piece. Um, and if you're, you know, confident about, you know, your marketing skills, um, can, you know, generate, you know, getting people into that space and uh, play that artistic content. Yeah, that's very interesting. I guess we can talk about, um, you know, the, the spatial audio until the sunset. But there's a reason why when you go to the cinema, people charge you um, 10 pounds, 10 British pounds for a, for a bag of popcorn and like maybe similar price in, 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 in the US as well. Or if you um, decide to have a hot dog and a, and, and a beer or, or something like that, it would probably cost you three times more than the tickets you're paying for to see the latest film. And um, there's probably a reason for that. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges, again, with the, the dome space is that you do have a limited amount of seats. Um, and so you can't um, really the best thing to do is to, you know, try to create an experience um, and something that's going to be, you know, more interesting than just going to the movie theater. You know, something that is, you know, really going to draw people in that's going to be something completely different and unique um, than they've ever, you know, experienced before. Otherwise, you know, how are you, you know, being able to kind of make those uh, kind of numbers work can be really challenging. So basically, we need more speakers. Uh, we need some kind of solid way how to play back adequately spatial audio with these new visual formats. And then we need uh, bars and popcorn machines and extended opening hours. And then we can have a conversation between XR industry and, and the dome venue industry, right? Always more speakers, always more domes. That's that's pretty much kind of what I always say. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, I was going to ask last question about what do you expect in this industry vertical in the coming years? I think you've communicated that the tone of positivity and and aspiration in in our conversation i think it's it's not something that's dying 
uh, it's something that is on the rise and we can kind of highlight it with a degree of confidence. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, I'm excited for the future of this industry and I'm excited to see where it goes. I think there's some really um, cool things happening. And uh, um, I mean, in this industry, but also just, you know, kind of the entertainment, um, you know, science, music, kind of these this whole kind of artistic space that's happening. So I'm definitely excited to see where where things lead. Well, Monica, thank you so much for giving us uh, such a good overview on and kind of opening up the curtain on the world of um, uh, domes and planetariums and different types of content um, that you guys have been involved with. Can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I guess uh, for me, it's always trying to surround myself with people that are better than me. Um, you know, I, I think when you can learn from you know, being around people that are doing things that you only wish that you could do, um, you know, and being able to learn from them, I think has really been a huge, you know, huge uh, influence in just, you know, being able to kind of grow as a technician, grow as an artist, um, and also being open to collaboration and, you know, finding people that you can grow with as well. And, uh, being parts of those communities um, and working on that growth with a group of people, I think is another thing that has really helped me along my path. And on this note, I would like to make a one small cheeky announcement and it's to do with Monica's involvement with Immersive Audio Podcast as a co-host for the future episodes. So I really hope you enjoyed uh, this interview with Monica because you will hear more soon again. I'm very excited to to hop on and be a part of this. So thank you so much for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. Monica, Beyond, thank you so much for today. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you next time. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, having me today. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page www.patreon.com slash immersive audio podcast you've been listening to the immersive audio podcast hosted by oliver cadell and bjorn jacobson this episode was produced by oliver cadell and emma reese and included music by rhythm scott got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit 1618digital.com slash immersive audio podcast to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. <laughs>